parfait. Welcome to the Night Science Podcast, where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Italian I. And I am Martin Lurcher. Nigel Goldenfeld is at the University of California at San Diego, where he's the Chancellor's Distinguished Professor in Physics. Nigel is well known in the physics community not only for his amazing research, but also for authoring one of the standard graduate textbooks in statistical mechanics. He's a member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. And Nigel's research is remarkably wide. He works on, for example, condensed matter theory, the theory of living systems, hydrodynamics, and many more topics. His research explores how patterns evolve over time. And he's also very interested in emergent and collective phenomena, from physics and even all the way to biology, where most of his work occurs these days. And so, Nigel, you know, we heard from a colleague of yours at UCSD that you have very interesting ideas about how creativity in the science works and that you even compare it to jazz. And so we're very interested to talk to you about that. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Hey, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here and uh, very pleased to be participating in an unusual podcast with a unique perspective. Unusual indeed. <laughs> and so, Nigel, what would you say is your kind of general approach to science? So I think the question you have to ask is, what do you mean by doing science? Some people regard science as doing measurements and theories that are somewhat incremental and uh, advance the field in ways that are fairly well controlled. There's not much risk. It's uh, fairly predictable. And I think a lot of science is basically done like that. My own approach to doing science is not to do that, and I consciously try not to. When I do science, I strive to do things that, if I didn't do them, would never be done by other people, or perhaps not for a long time. So I'm not interested in being the first person to do calculation X and beat my competitor by three weeks in submitting a paper <laughs> to physical review letters or something. I'm right, interested in, yeah, I'm trying to do something that's kind of off the wall, that if I didn't do it, people might never do it. And uh, so I filter projects very much based on that. And I can, we can get into how I kind of quantify that. You mentioned in the introduction about jazz, and that's about the process of executing the vision of doing science as opposed to what the vision of doing science is. And so I can talk about that too. The jazz quote came because that's how I regard a collaboration. When I collaborate mm. with students, when I collaborate with other faculty, experimentalists, and so on, I view it as, as doing jazz. Because I think mm. when we're doing science, one of the things we're doing is we're creating art. Interesting perspective. Actually, maybe let's continue a little bit on that line. When you say, as scientists, we are creating art, that's not how most people would see it, I think. So can you explain that a bit more? Like, where's the artistic value of what we do or the artistic process? Many scientists will have had the experience of you read a paper, maybe a theoretical paper or an experimental paper, a computational paper, and you just say, wow, that is just a beautiful 
piece of work. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the question that was asked was a really interesting question. It was addressed in a very interesting and novel way that made you think about things differently. And after you read it, you felt that your consciousness had been raised, that you were a better person as a result of having read it. And Mm. all of those experiences also would describe perhaps how one feels when one sees a wonderful piece of art. And I do think that good science is art. I think there is artistry in the way that it's done and the way that the result occurs. And Mm. I think one of the things that's interesting about doing science as opposed to science fiction, you're constrained by what happens in the real world. And so it's that tension that I think creates a unique opportunity for creativity and for the production of things that are beautiful as well as useful. Yeah. You know, Nigel, it's really interesting that you distinguish between the maybe aesthetic value of an art. Like, you know, you don't mean just looking at a microscopic image and saying, oh, wow, that's beautiful. You don't mean that. You mean that there's a kind of a original statement, perhaps a novel question that was Mm -hmm. raised by the art. And that's akin to what we're trying to do in science. That's right. For example, there's been amazing revolutions in our ability to visualize the structures inside a cell. So structural biology has been transformed in the last 10 or 15 years. And when you look at the images that you see, one can appreciate them not just because they look beautiful, but because you know how this thing was done and the technique that was used, the way that the experimenter acquired these images and created them is beautiful in and of itself. But in my case, when one is doing theoretical science, which is what I do, there's definitely an aesthetic that comes into the way you do the mathematics and apply it to a physical world. And I think many theorists are drawn to the subject initially by the mathematical beauty. And then it turns out to be useful as well. And so that's a kind of added bonus. Yeah, I think many of us have had this experience where an idea comes up in a project and everybody just says, wow. Or Many times, Uh Martin and I, when we were collaborating on one project, we would use the term poetry. It's so beautiful. It's like poetry. And I think that the idea was that it just generates a kind of insight in a non-obvious way. And going back to what you were saying before, it's not just developing an existing idea that there would be a race to achieve. So maybe you would beat your Uh colleague by three weeks, Uh but rather it's just something that's totally out of nowhere, totally unexpected. And that is perhaps a tribute to yourself. But then I think people outside of science listening to us speak might say, don't you think it's pretty presumptuous to think that you can do something that nobody else can? Think back to that John Lennon song, All You Need Is Love, the Beatles. Uh You know, there's nothing you can do that can't be done. Why is it that we think that we bring such a unique artistic side that we have a unique thing to offer? I don't think there's a presumption or an arrogance. I think it's something that we strive to do, just like any artist does. I think it's more an aspiration, and some people like to do that. Some people don't even try. And, of course, there's no necessity that by producing something of scientific beauty that it's scientifically useful. And the greatest things are when they do turn out to be like that. And the beauty in it comes not just from the intrinsic beauty, because it then changes your outlook. And people often use the phrase, uh, somebody's work opened up new vistas. And I think that's really true. I can give you examples. Well, maybe the best example is Einstein's theory of general relativity, which is 
to somebody who has a training in graduate level mathematics and physics is just, I mean, everybody who encounters it is just blown away by the beauty of it. And then it turns out that it describes so many different things. And even today, we're still running into predictions that it made, which are just now being tested, like gravitational waves. And another great scientist, Paul Dirac, also won the Nobel Prize for his work contributing to the start of quantum mechanics. And he talked about the simplicity and beauty of equations, and then he wrote down the equation that bears his name, and it turned out, as he put it, it described uh, most of physics and all of chemistry. And I don't think he was trying to do that. I think he was just trying to write down the most simple equation that had a certain mathematical structure, and it turned out to work. Yeah, so, you know, you mentioned the term beauty multiple times when you were talking about the art and science. But what is that, actually? What is beauty in science? Yeah, it's very hard to specify. When you look at, say, the beauty of science, I've mentioned that it helps to have uh, graduate training in mathematics or physics, in my particular mm. case, for example. And you might say, well, how can it be art if you need to be so highly trained? But mm. I think the same thing is true for music. I mean, you could play some very beautiful mm -hmm. classical music. And somebody who has been trained in music can appreciate all the things that the composer did to make it beautiful. Well, see it and experience it in a different way than somebody who's not so trained. I mean, I happen to like Chopin, and I'm an amateur musician myself. And so when you listen to some of those pieces, you can see how the beauty is in the way that it was constructed and executed, conceived, not just the actual sounds and so on that you hear. And I think I definitely know that's true of art as well. I didn't know nothing about art, but my wife is an artist, and she'll explain to me aspects of what we're looking at and then I'll say oh yeah I see that that enhances my appreciation and understanding um, I remember having that experience visiting a museum where there was a lot of uh, cubist art and it meant nothing to me until it was explained to me by my wife so I think this is again something that is in common with other arts that the level of appreciation and response to it uh, does depend on the the audience also making the efforts to reach towards the artist as well as the other way around. That's really interesting because sometimes we feel that maybe after a long time working on a project, we reach a certain level of simplicity. Things have really progressed to such a degree that you've earned this kind of beauty and simplicity. And then one way that I view it is that when you then write the paper, when you're now in the realm of communicating the result, it's not really necessary for the audience to know the path, the process, but rather just the result, you know, just what you found. And oftentimes it's kind of unfortunate because they appreciate the simplicity to such a degree that they actually think it's simple and they don't realize how much work it took you to get there. And so there is this interesting aspect that somehow the more work you put into it, the easier it is for someone to understand. It's so simple, but it does, in some sense, doesn't impart the amount of effort that you put into it to the listener. Yeah, I totally agree. And there's an analog of that in art too, because often when you go and see an art exhibit at a museum, and maybe they'll have on display the original art of uh, Van Gogh or whoever it is, and then yeah. they'll, if it's a retrospective, they'll often have, you know, here's the sketchbooks of the artist. Mm. And you can see that they spent weeks, months, maybe, practicing. Draft after draft after draft. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Practicing in pencil and stuff like that. And it's the same thing when you're doing science. I mean, weeks and weeks and months of 
calculations that don't work and scribbling things out and stuff like that. And when you go back and look at great scientists and look at their original notebooks, it's really quite revealing. I had the experience recently of looking at the work of Lars Onsager, who's an amazing Norwegian scientist who also won the Nobel Prize in chemistry. But he worked in many different fields, particularly in the fields I'm working in right now on fluid turbulence. And I went back to look at his notes. doesn't really matter what it is, something called the dissipative anomaly. I wanted to know how did he come up with this idea, a very important idea in our understanding of turbulence, far, far ahead of his time. And indeed, the way that he did it, when you look at his notes, there's lots of crossings out and you can see his mental processes as he suddenly realizes, oh, wait, I don't need to do that in this calculation, things like mm. this. And then when you look at his calculation, you look at it and, and you say, wait a minute, this is a forerunner of what was eventually part of a theory that eventually won the Nobel Prize 40 years later. He had already seen that, never even bothered to publish it, but it was in there and you could see how he came to this realization. These are sketches as well. So you're saying that looking at these notes, for example, by Onsager, you understand something about the process. Do you think that process is very similar between different scientists, that there's patterns that you would expect to find everywhere? I don't really know, but I don't think so. I don't see any reason there should be. I mean, there's many different routes to scientific creativity and discovery. And what works for one person may not work for another because they have different goals and different ways of doing things. It's just that in his particular case, his work is so important to me personally that I was very well attuned to the calculation that he was doing. And so I know I could see, I'll just go be a little bit technical here, he's doing a calculation of something that's an average, and halfway through he crosses out the average symbol because he suddenly realizes this thing is true for each individual realization. It's not true just for the average. And that turns out to be very important in our understanding of fluid turbulence. And you can see that's the moment when he realized this, contrary to his expectations. So you can see the revelations happening wow. as an artist Perhaps as an artist is drawing a model or a scene and they suddenly realize, oh, there's a particular way to do the shading to get the shadow right or something like that. Yeah, and Nigel, going back to your analogy of the collaborative process as being like jazz, Yeah, I'm wondering, is it like in a quintet where the trumpet player is playing a solo while the pianist mm -hmm. maybe is playing the melody in the background and they're both improvising in real time? Yes. So I think this is a very important thing. Uh, let me try to explain what I meant. So when you are collaborating with somebody, the goal, in my view, is to reach a new level of understanding of the subject and the particular problem that you're addressing. And I do this with my students and collaborators. And it is very much like improvisational theatre. So one of the rules of improvisational theatre is always to say yes. Mm. In other words, you suspend disbelief. You listen to what the other person is saying and you then go on with it. And that's how improv works. And I think the same thing is true with scientific collaboration. Mm -hmm. You have to listen to what the other person is saying, thinking about or writing on the blackboard or whatever, and sort of try to add to that in a very free form way. And you have to be able to do it in a way that you're not 
for example, you know, trying to impress the other person. Like, for example, I have a problem where I'll be working with a student and the student will initially, when they start working with me, they may be worried, well, Nigel is a senior scientist, I better make sure that I don't say anything stupid. Mm. And I tell the students, I promise you I'm going to say something stupid and you're going to say something stupid as well. And it doesn't matter because that's not the point of the exercise. I already know you're smart, you're working with me, so... Stop worrying about that. Just focus on the science. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing that reminds me of is um, Jimi Hendrix's statement about mm-hmm. blues, which is that blues is the wrong note played at the right time. And I think that the same thing is true when you're being creative about science. So particularly in theoretical physics, a lot of the advance is made by making analogies. And the way we make those analogies is, frankly, guesswork and intuition. And after you've been doing it for a while, you get to be better at sort of seeing what those analogies might be because you understand more things and you can make connections. Mm-hmm. And so when you're collaborating with somebody, you have to be able to let your hair down and not be afraid to say something stupid. And you might say something that's crazy and then you realize, wait a minute, you know, that really works. And I'll give you an example from my own work. I won't go into in too much detail, but I've been working on how fluids become turbulent. And if you have fluid going through a pipe, if the fluid is going through fast enough, it'll eventually become turbulent. And how that happens is people have been trying to understand for nearly 150 years. And we discovered that the way this happens turns out to be very analogous to what happens in the science of ecology, how an ecosystem is able to support multiple species, one of which might be a predator, one of which might be a prey, that kind of thing. I'm not going to go into the technical details here, but there is an analogy between two completely different things, absolutely wild that this could possibly be right. Mm. But it turns out as you do calculations and computer simulations, you start to look at what's coming out and you realise oh my God, this thing is behaving just like in ecology. And you start to make these insane connections. And the more you work on it, the more it turns out to be true. And that's an example where you have to be able to suspend natural disbelief, as it were. Mm -hmm. And so that's an example of how it's like doing something like in jazz, you're doing chord changes and progressions and things like this that are sort of Not in the book, but yet when you hear John Coltrane doing them, it's suddenly like, oh my God, this is incredible. Who would have thought of that? You know, it's really interesting that you make this analogy with improvisational theater, which is something that Itai and I also have been thinking about. Uh You know, one difference, though, of course, is that, like you say, in improvisational theater, you always have to say yes, suspend disbelief and just go with whatever the other person is saying. Uh Whereas in science, you have to respond to anything the other person says in a very positive way. But on the other hand, like you promise your students, you are going to say something stupid and they are going to say something stupid. So just saying yes to that and then move on from there ah, yeah. might not be the right thing. So No, no, no. So it doesn't mean yes, we're not going to suspend. because You can suspend disbelief, but not the scientific method. And yes. so if I say something and, and then the student says, well, wait a minute, you've just violated the uh, conservation of angular momentum, then it's like, oh, yeah, okay, that was wrong. So it's not an unconditional yes. It's just like in the best improvisational theater, sometimes the most interesting moments, well, particularly if it's improvisational comedy, which I particularly like, the best moments come when two of the characters 
are going along a path, and then one of the characters immediately does a U-turn and sort of flips it on its head. And so you have to be able to, at some point, have a reversion. There is a constraint, as I was saying before, that you have to respect the laws of nature. But you have to be prepared to have this dialogue with your collaborators. And actually, here's another point which I want to make, Mm. which is different people have different styles, and what works for me is certainly not necessarily what works for many other people. But I happen to enjoy the process of doing science, so I like to have collaborators, particularly students. I write very few papers on my own. I can do that, but then I usually don't publish it. I just then use that as the basis for a project that the student Mm. would then work with me on to make it even better. And Mm. so I think that the social side of creativity is something that is often ignored in the public perception of what it is that scientists do. You know, the usual movie picture of someone like a theoretical physicist like Einstein is you know, sitting at their desk writing obscure equations on paper. But when I see practicing scientists at work, you know, you go to any institute or physics department, you'll see people standing at the blackboard arguing with each other and discussing. And it's this collaborative part of it that is what brings joy to people. Yeah, it's very interesting. As Martin said, we're very primed to agree with you on everything that you're saying. Very exciting for us to hear. Or even publishing a piece called It Takes Two to Think. And it's exactly the notion that there's a similarity with improvisational theater, the yes and. And what I want to get at, though, is that the whole notion here is premised on having a particular kind of collaborator. Yes. You need to have the other person buy into it. Do you find that in some fields there there is more this constraint of, you know, don't be ridiculous, Nigel. We know what the problem is. We just need to bang out the solution. There's really not much to brainstorm about at the board. It's more doing, less thinking. Yeah, I think what you've raised is the question of how do you choose your collaborators and what the goal is. Because as you say, it can be that somebody would just say, forget it, I don't want to do that, just do the calculation and show me the graph. So that's the sort of science I don't have any interest in doing. But yes, it is important to choose your collaborators carefully. And I do in my choice of students and in people who I choose professionally to work with. That's interesting. And let me just mention another thing. You said that your title of your article is something like it takes two to collaborate or something like that, did you say? To think. It takes two to think. So I disagree. I think it takes three. Okay. Interesting. I try to choose my collaborations to have three people in them if I can. And the reason, revealing all my secrets here, <laughs> but the reason is that if you've just got two people, eventually you can get locked into maybe the sort of two-body version of toxic groupthink where you you end up agreeing (laughs) and then you've sort of got into a rut and and then you may go down a blind alley for a long period of time or creativity and inspiration may dry up. But when you have a third person, we've all heard about the three-body problem and how it is insoluble and how it leads to chaotic dynamics and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I found over the years that having three people in the collaboration means that there's often two people who are having the discussion. The third person is sort of sitting back, watching and thinking. And then they say, hey, wait a minute, guys, you forgot about blah, 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 or something like mm-hmm. this. Or then if something gets uh, tired and somebody says, well, why don't we instead think about X, Y, Z? And so I think having a third person is an enormous accelerator for the thinking process. And also, it's very important that you have diversity of perspectives in the collaboration. So in other words, if I have two other collaborators apart from me and they've all been trained to think the same way I do, then 
essentially physicists' way of saying well, the vectors are too parallel to each other. <laughs> you want to have different dimensions to each per- to the what it is that each person contributes. And so if I have a three-person collaboration, often I try to fill it with people who bring a slightly different perspective to the table so that one can explore the space in a faster way than one otherwise would. Hmm. So, Nigel, I'm actually thinking, and this is something that Itai and I also talk about in this article that you mentioned, is that with three people, the social dynamics become much more complicated than with two people. So I think it's much more challenging in some ways, which leads me to the suspicion that in these three people groups, you might predominantly take on a very specific role. I mean, is it that it's usually the other two having the discussion and you watching and thinking? No. It's not? Okay. At least not in my ones. When I have discussions with my collaborators, at least I try to make it so that there is no notion of seniority or anything like that. What's also interesting is Martin and I, in a sense, need to agree with you at some level, because this very conversation right here is among three people. Yeah. Interesting (laughs) observation. And you know, one thing that Martin and I always uh, talk about behind the scenes here is that as one of us is talking to the guest, the other one can sort of disengage, tune out, and think about what's the next thing that should be said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's maybe very similar to working on a... That is. And I had occurred to me, and also I get the sense that uh, both of you tend to agree directionally about things, which is why you're doing this. Mm. But if you look at some of the most successful TV shows or radio shows, mm-hmm. often they will have two hosts who violently disagree with each other. Somebody from the right, somebody from the left, and then they're interviewing a guest. And then you've got a whole other social dynamic there, which I suppose makes for more interesting Mm. TV or radio, whatever it is. Mm. I don't agree. I'm sorry, I don't agree. No, 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 Itai, he's he's absolutely right. I'm not sure about that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm horribly offended. At this point, we'd like to thank our sponsors. The Night Science Podcast is supported in part by Research Theory, a nonprofit working to improve creativity and culture in science. Find out more at researchtheory.org. And by IMI, a nonprofit building a public media ecosystem for the 21st century. Learn more at theimi.co. We're so glad that IMI and Research Theory are supporting the teaching and the discussion of the creative scientific process. Thank you. And let's get back to the conversation. So I want to go back to the question you'd asked about jazz, which is mm. why you'd originally talked to me. When I make that observation, I like to contrast it with classical music, because in a classical music, as an amateur musician, I play blues, and I also play classical piano. And mm. in classical music, you're trying to subvert your own expression to that of the composer, but you're adding your own nuances, or perhaps in my case, imperfections, <laughs> what the composer's vision was. And so often when I have beginning students, they are very focused on the technique, you know, doing the integrals the exact right way and writing down the mathematics in a sort of approved way. And then I'm just saying, I don't care about all of that. I'll just sort of guess the answers on the board and do things in a very hazard, very non-rigorous way, which I know that later on we can go back and fix and, and make precise. And so I find it very interesting as part of the educational process for students 
to help them make this transition from being a classical musician to one who is a jazz musician. And as you may know, playing jazz looks easy. And you know, you say, well, you don't have to worry about anything. But actually, if you want to try to learn how to play jazz, there's an incredible amount of knowledge and music theory that has to be integrated and learned and understood intuitively in order to be able to do it mm. well. Yeah, because, you know, if you're improvising, that means you need to know all of the basics of known melodies. And then on mm -hmm. top of that, you know even more. You know the rules so well, you can improvise on them. I agree with you. It takes like a whole new level. That's right. And so what that means is that we're doing jazz science, as it were. You know, to somebody who is not a professional scientist and has not been trained like that, it looks like watching a scientist talk about their work, they think, well, it's just a free-for-all. I can do that too. But then right. what typically happens unless you happen to be a patent clerk in Zurich in the turn of the century, <laughs> is that when an amateur tries to do that, there's making all sorts of mistakes because they haven't had that training. Just like me trying to play jazz is hopeless because I just don't have enough understanding of music theory to be able to do it. And so what looks easy to a non-scientist, actually what's hidden beneath the surface is a great deal of technique and understanding and so on. Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges to graduate students who for the first time are immersed in doing research themselves is to learn how to not only have, you know, what Itai and I would call the day science process, <laughs> where you're working according to established protocols and just doing standard things that you learned in your undergraduate studies, but where you have to have your own creativity and bring mm -hmm. your own creativity into the project. Mm -hmm. And I love this analogy that you just made, that it's like a transition from classical music to jazz music. I think that's awesome. I would like to go back, though, now to something that you said early on in this conversation, and that is that you like to work on projects that are off the wall. Yeah. So how do you decide, how do you quantify if a project is sufficiently off the wall to be interesting? Yeah. So here's one way that I think about this. There's lots of different ways, and it's something that has evolved over time during my scientific career. So I think that the way that one can measure one's impact, if you will, is roughly speaking, the ratio of what you contribute to what everybody else contributes. So a numerator over a denominator. And what most people try to do is they try to improve the numerator. Now, what you do is always bounded by something. You know, it could be bounded by how much funding you have, how lucky you are, how much support you have, by your own mental abilities and, and so on, what your life circumstances are and so on. So there's a limit to how you can improve what you do, how you can mm. increase that factor. But the factor of what everybody else does you can make as small as you like. And the easiest way to make it as small as you like is to work on problems that nobody else ever worked on. Mm. So then your impact becomes something over something that's basically zero. <laughs> so it can be very <laughs> large. And the danger of that is that there's obviously a good reason why nobody else worked on it before, or very few people <laughs> did. And so either you risk a complete failure and crashing and burning, or you risk that you are successful but it takes a while 
for people to recognize it. And so what that means is if you're someone who is perceived as a leader in your field, you have to be used to the idea that you're going to be quite lonely because as you're working on a problem, there's going to be many other people who think that you're doing something that's crazy or they're not interested in or they think is wrong. And then only later will the appreciation emerge. And it's a trade-off that one knowingly has to make. But mm. I think it's worth doing. And so I choose problems specifically with that in mind. I try to mm. suggest problems to my students so that they're not going to be competing with 100 other students all working on the same thing and try to find a different angle, a different question uh, that one can ask. You know, Nigel, that reminds me of a statement that was made by Sidney Brenner. Mm-hmm. He said that science is like a game of chess. There's the opening game. And then there's the middle game, and that's where most of us are spending most of our careers. He calls that the boring part. Uh And then there's the end game, and where you actually win. And that one, he says that many few of us actually get a chance to get to. And according to him, he likes the opening game. I think you Uh seem to be of his mindset as well. You like the opening game. You You like to start things, and you start a whole new field. Be the father of that field. That's great. But some people object, and they say... That, uh, first of all, they say the analogy is all messed up because in chess, the opening game is kind of boring and it's more the middle game. It's where all the action is. <laughs> so it, might, it might be a bad analogy. Well, I think the analogy has some imperfections, but I mean, there's tactics and there's strategy. And the middle is mostly about tactics, I think. And then at the beginning and maybe the end game are more about strategy, perhaps. Interesting. And so have you found that in many of the opening games that you choose to follow, there's a high attrition rate or a long game that you have to play to wait for the results? Or has it mostly been a bet that you're willing to make? Oh, it's a bet that I'm willing to make because that's what I enjoy doing. And I'm lucky enough that I have a lot of interests. I seem to be able to find something interesting in virtually everything that I look at. And so, for example, as you say, right now, many people would consider me a biological physicist. But the truth of the matter is that I find biology, at least the way that it's usually presented, to be very boring and very difficult to understand. And that's why it took me many years before I started working on biology, because it took me a long time to understand what are the questions that are interesting in biology to me that I wanted to spend time answering. And so you have to be able to sort of look below the surface and see what it is that you find interesting and ask those questions. And sometimes those questions may not be very interesting to other people. And then you have to try to explain why you think they are interesting. Yeah, I think it's very good for science that people with different perspectives move from field to field and then bring in these new perspectives. And you said earlier that you seem to always find something interesting in everything that you look at. I can really relate to that. I think in the project in my lab, we find time and again that basically the way to think about it is that it's a process that you don't just have some kind of hypothesis at the beginning and then the bulk of the time in the project is just testing that hypothesis. You know, no more thinking. The thinking was done before. Now it's just testing. Mm -hmm. But really, it's just a back and forth. You just keep thinking and you observe new things. And, oh, you find this interesting thing, but ah, that was already published. That's already known Mm -hmm. you found. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, you just keep looking, you keep looking. And then eventually you find something interesting. So I think that that's something that's not really communicated to the students. I think we, we provide like a very sort of impoverished view 
of the process to incoming scientists. And maybe it leaves them a little bit depressed when they misinterpret the way it's going for a kind of failure, when really that's just the process that you keep looking until you find something interesting. Yeah, I totally agree. In fact, when I'm recruiting students, I tell them exactly this. I try to shatter their expectations about what the scientific process is. And at least certainly my scientific process, I draw them a graph of your happiness as a function of time uh, if you start <laughs> to work with me. And it's sort of something that goes up for a short while because they're happy that they've got an advisor and they've got a Right, project. like you're just getting Stuff started. Like so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So things, things are looking good. And I say, then it's going to go down. And my job is to make sure it doesn't go to minus infinity. And then, <laughs> and then eventually it'll stay down with occasionally blips upwards as something gets done. Like a good day. That's right. Because most of the time, as a theorist, you're banging your head against a wall. With luck, by the end of your PhD, <laughs> you'll get back to where you started before you started this process. And I tell them, actually, most of my students have at the end finished. They've been very happy with where they ended up, but the process is a challenging yeah. one. Yeah, but do they end at the same level of happiness as that original high or higher or lower? Higher, usually. The reason is this, and I tell them, this isn't a boot camp, but this is the one time in your life when you will learn how to solve impossible problems. And once you're a postdoc, if that's what you do, you won't have time to do that. Once you're a faculty member trying to get tenure, you won't have time to do that. Once you're a tenured faculty writing grants and so on, you won't have time to do that. And so this is the one opportunity that you have to learn to do the thing that is miraculous about science, which is solving something that is impossible. And it's impossible because if it was possible, it would have already been done. And that's truthfully how I see it. And my way of doing things doesn't always suit every student. And there's students who I wouldn't suggest that they work with me because the style <laughs> of doing science wouldn't be what, they, what they're looking for. And that's fine. There's many different ways that one can contribute to science and it doesn't have to be the same for everyone. But that's what I do. And the students who have worked with me have all done amazingly in doing that. They've signed up to do something challenging, just as I have as a professor uh, signed up to do something, which is not always, you don't get the immediate rewards, and sometimes you're grumbling and depressed and you're stuck and so on. But I think in general, you have faith that either you will solve it or you'll move the goalposts and change the question and find something that can be done. And, and that's mm -hmm. also part of the scientific method. Well, Nigel, you know, as we start to wrap up this wonderful discussion, I think when you have a prospective student and you're thinking about how to explain to them what it's like to work with you, you could point them to this episode and have them listen to it. Certainly, certainly. Well, I hope that maybe this conversation, which has been quite wonderful from my perspective, has changed people's perceptions of what it is that scientists do and why they do it and how they do it and what they get out of it. I'm sure people who listen to this will learn an awful lot from this. I actually learned a lot from this, so I'm very grateful for you taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, and I agree, Nigel, that it was very wonderful and enjoyable to speak with you. Uh, thank you so much for that time. My pleasure. Thank you for such great questions and for hosting me on your podcast. And maybe offline, we could talk about science sometime. <laughs> that would be great. Let's <laughs> do that. Nice, and we'll play some jazz in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful.